Hello and welcome to Careers by Design, the interviews. I'm Sharon belden Castingway, Director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today I'm speaking with Michael Fries, Class of 1985, President and CEO of Liberty Global, the world's largest international TV and broadband company. Mike, welcome to Careers by Design. Thanks for having me, Sharon. Sure. Now, Mike, I recognize that Liberty Global is a huge organization. Could you just briefly tell me a bit about uh, your operations as well as the size and scope of the company? Sure. Well, you you, uh, gave it a nice little plug at the beginning. We are the largest international uh, TV and Internet company, but an easier way to think about us is kind of Comcast or Time Warner Cable outside the U.S., so we do the very same things, um, and many more things, in fact, that, that you know your local cable company might do. We're just doing it in Europe and South America and other parts of the world and have been doing that for 25-plus you know, years. Uh, today, we our networks, and they're all fiber networks uh, and increasingly mobile networks, reach uh, 60 million homes in those markets, and we today uh, provide services to 30 million customers, plus or minus. Uh, and we also have 15 million mobile customers. So we've really evolved our business over that period of time. Today, you know, video only represents about a third of our revenue. We make uh, 25% of our revenue is helping businesses and mobile customers. And, uh, of course, we have a big broadband business. Today we generate, oh, if you combine the joint venture we just did with Vodafone in Holland, about $22 billion of revenue and about $10 billion of EBITDA, which is really the, the most important metric for us in the communications business. And we serve about, or we have about 45,000 employees in you know, about 30 markets around the world. So a global corporation indeed. <laughs> yep. Now, going back in time a bit, I understand that you grew up on the West Coast. Tell me a bit about how you managed to find yourself in college in Connecticut. Yeah, great question. So I was one of eight kids. I grew up in L.A., um, bit of a beach rat. And, uh, you know, I was the sixth of eight kids. And I, um, my other brothers and sisters, most of them went to college, but nobody left L.A. And I just felt like maybe I could you know, experience something different. So uh, I, uh, I took a chance. This is a long time ago. Things were different then. Uh, there wasn't, you know, I don't think I had a career counselor or a, or a uh, college counselor that I can remember. Uh, and, uh, you know, but I heard about the school and I applied to, you know, some other schools in the region and decided I wanted to go back east. It was uh, a big decision, of course. I, I'll never forget my brother drove me to the airport, uh, you know, and I took a flight to JFK and a Greyhound bus to Middletown, Connecticut, and lugged my trunk up to the middle of campus and said, you know, where do I go? <laughs> it was right. a, uh, you know, I just dropped my daughter off at college, very different experience, but uh, but I wanted to branch out, I wanted to, I didn't really want to specialize, I liked the rigorous academic environment, I liked the, you know, the, the, the you know, the campus situation, so for me it was, a, it was a, a great choice, and I'm really glad I did that. What types of things were you involved with on campus, both academic and not? Well, I was uh, a, a, a member of, the, of SIU, um, so mm-hmm. Epsilon, and was you know, pretty involved in uh, in the organization of that and the governance of the fraternity. Uh, I rode crew, which is, you know, in, in high school in California, I played football, I played volleyball, you know, I did a lot of sports, but I came back, and the crew program at Wesleyan at the time was really rebuilding in fact, it had kind of gone away in the uh, 
in the seventies and uh I remember we we formed a lightweight crew team and it was I think the first in a long time, but we did quite well, you know we were fast and I really enjoyed crew. For me, it was a perfect fit, you know, because I got a pretty high pain threshold, and I liked to, to run. I had good endurance, and I loved that sport. Uh, I studied, I double majored in economics and uh, in government, specifically I, political philosophy, political theory stuff. And uh, very funny story, though, even though I wasn't a, a science guy, I, I was a teaching assistant in a chemistry class. I have no idea how <laughs> I ended up doing that, but I did meet my girlfriend in that class, so that worked out pretty well. Um, but uh, so you know, like a lot of Wesleyan kids, I was you know, doing a lot of different things, and and I think getting the most out of the the school and the, and the opportunity and the experience. How did you go about deciding what to do after graduation? I uh, in my summers, I I did various things, but before my senior year, I worked in New York City. Um, and I was sort of uh, an analyst or a you know assistant in a in a small boutique investment bank, and you know I I enjoyed living in the city. It was a great experience for me. It was a you know big wake up call. And uh, so so with Barbara Jan's help and like many in my class and and in that that era, you know she was a terrific resource for us. And I landed a jo- an analyst job with an investment bank on Wall Street, and I loved it. I mean it was. Uh, you know, a really good experience for me, and I got to focus on media and telecom, uh, which was, you know, my dad was in the TV business uh, for decades, and so I kind of had a interest in that space and uh, got to work with a lot of great cable companies, a lot of great entrepreneurs, and I learned a ton. I mean, one of the reasons that I recommend these two-year programs to to, to kids is if, they, if, they, if they're interested is you really learn about what you're good at and what you're not good at and also the kind of people you want to work with the environment that you're going to perform in and for me you know I always had a good work ethic and that is the most important thing in almost any job is having a really good work ethic caring about the product and uh, I'll tell you a funny story I was just I just had a town hall meeting here in my office and I was telling the story um, but as an analyst you do all the hard work of course and I remember I was putting a book together for a M&A assignment or something and I got home at four in the morning and woke up a little late, raced to LaGuardia, and of course back then there were no mobile phones, right, and no internet, so right. I wasn't able to communicate with anybody, and uh, I ran down the, you know, the, to the terminal and got to the gate, and the plane was just leaving, I mean, it had already detached and was backing up, I put the bag down, and I raced up to the window at LaGuardia, and I just begged this pilot, I could see him, I just begged him, I pointed to the bag, I please, 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 please. And I'll be darned if he didn't stop that plane and pull it back <laughs> up 20 feet. And everyone's like, everyone was like, what the heck's going on? And I came walking in and, uh, you know, so anyway, you, 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 you learn a little bit about yourself when you're put to, to the test in those types of environments. And uh, so for me, it was a great experience. I enjoyed it. Now, I understand you ultimately decided to get an MBA. How did you go about choosing a business program? Um, well, I tell you, it was a, for me. It wasn't that difficult because um, the, uh, the the investment bank I worked for had offered me an opportunity to. They said basically, if you go to business school, um, that will uh, and, you, and if you go to Columbia specifically, uh, we'll essentially pay for it. And when you come back, you got to come work for us, and you work it off. And I said, hey, that sounds like a good deal. Right. So I applied to Columbia. I got in, and uh, I 
I, during the Columbia is on a trimester system, so I did during the fall and and spring semesters I would take maybe two classes and then just you know get back to the office till two in the morning and then in the summers I they would give me sort of a couple months off and I would take maybe a course load of four or five classes, so I did it in, I don't know two and a half years or something, and then I came back to work at um, the firm I was with and uh, in a you know was promoted and making more money. So, yeah, I got a lot out of it. I think an MBA isn't for everybody. I think there's a lot to learn in business school. Uh, I, in my particular case, I think I was learning as much on the job as I was in business school, but I recommend business school to, to kids or adults, really, in particular, when they're looking to pivot because mm-hmm. it's an excellent way to get back into a program and pivot left or right into a new industry or a new job because nobody asks you, well, why are you change, Why are you applying for this job? Well, because I'm in business school and I'm graduating. If you're if you start in the agriculture business and you want to go into the consumer products business or the you know financial business, they don't ask you that question after business school because they know you've gone to business school to make that move. So I recommend it. I think there's lots to learn, and I've reconnected with Columbia. I just joined their board. Well, I'm about to join their board of overseers, which is their version of a board of directors, and. Um, going to uh, you know endow a professorship there. So I mean, I, I, it's a great program. It's one of the best today. I don't know if it was when I went there, <laughs> but it's <laughs> one of the best today. And uh, you know, I think that's it's a great opportunity for kids who want to take advantage of it. So, did you have a certain amount of time that you had to go back to the bank after you finished your degree? I did, and I didn't make it because I got I, about nine months after that. I started working for a company out here in Denver that was one of the pioneers in the cable business, and they were selling their company to John Malone and uh, decided to keep some of the international cable businesses they were developing, and uh, they needed to raise some money. So I started working for them, and they quickly said, "Look, at you know, we're we're a tiny company. Uh, you would be employee number five." But this seems like an interesting business. Come join us. And so I did. I took a 70% pay cut. I moved to Denver. I was the fifth employee. My first desk was a cardboard box. Hmm. And uh, we raised $20 million, and we put this company together um, with very little but a great idea. And the great idea was that people outside the U.S. want to watch MTV and CNN and whatever was on cable at that moment. And and I'll be darned if that wasn't true. You know, we flew. My job was a development, and it was the only kind of one-man show in this area. But finding new markets, finding new partners, finding opportunities, and flying around the world, uh, trying to put those things together for us. And uh, we had a great pedigree because the uh, the chairman and CEO at the time had been in the business since the 50s, and John Malone started investing with us immediately, and ultimately we brought it all together. But it was it was it was crazy. I mean, it was really incredible to be, I don't know what I was, late 20s, early 30s, traveling around the globe uh, and uh, trying to build a media business and a network telecom business from scratch in markets that were really emerging. One of the most ex- interesting deals we did was in Hungary. We f- I flew there right after the wall came down in Berlin and uh, with a colleague, we rented a car and we drove around to 13 different cities in Hungary and met with all the mayors because the mayors were the guys who actually controlled the cable companies. Hmm. And we struck a deal with each one of them, 50-50 deal. The cable companies were getting 30 cents a customer or something like that. And, uh, you know, long story short, we built that business, ultimately bought them out, invested tons of money in the business today, does you know, hundreds of millions of revenue. But it was I was there at the coal face of turning communists into capitalists. Mm-hmm. And I learned that, uh, you know, communists 
the good ones anyway make the best capitalists because they it didn't take them long to figure out what the opportunity was and uh but we were doing those kinds of things and it's it's been a long story since then it wasn't a straight line but uh it's been a great uh, well, I guess 27 years I guess when you were deciding to leave New York to leave banking and go to this tiny company in Colorado did that feel risky at the time did that matter to you you know great question um I was doing really well, and they offered me a lot of money, and, you know, this was 1989, 1990 to stay. Mm. But I was, uh, you know, I knew that there was something more out there, and I had done some traveling with this group to try to help them raise money and put this together, and I got the bug. And, you know, the world is was, wasn't quite as flat then as it is now, but it was getting flatter. And satellite television and cable television and ultimately the Internet is what's made the world as flat as it is. So I feel like we played a big role in that, and I could see that opportunity. I also knew that, hey, if it didn't work, I could just carry on another 1,500 miles, and I'd be back in California, and I'd figure it out. Uh, so I think, you know, you have to be willing to take some risk in your life. I mean, I always tell younger people, you know, get just get started, figure out what you're good at, you know, you know, be patient. But if, if, if an opportunity arises, be willing to take that risk because, um, you know, if you're if if you're confident in yourself and you have skills and and you and you have that drive, you're going to land somewhere. And uh, no one's ever going to look at you and say, "Well, why did you do that?" If it doesn't work, they're going to say, "Wow, that was pretty gutsy." Tell me what you learned in that experience. And uh, for me, that's how I looked at it, and it turned out to be, you know, a great move. But you know, it, it, it doesn't always turn out that way. But I think you always gain something—a little scar tissue, a little. And all the wisdom, relationships, every every stop along the way is going to help make you, I think, a you know a better candidate for what you want to do in life. Well, I certainly imagine there was quite a bit of that in terms of your own growth into the CEO of what became Liberty Global. I'm curious to know, in retrospect, looking over your decades with the organization, do you think that there were any particular transition points, any pivot points? that you think were really pivotal to becoming the CEO of the organization later? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think there probably were. That's a good question. Let me think about it. But um, I'd say in one in particular, well, there's a couple. Um, mid-90s, we decided to regionalize the company, and I went from being sort of corporate development lead to running the Asia-Pacific operations and so I moved my family to Australia and lived down in Sydney, and we built a company there. I built a company there, really, with my colleagues that we ultimately ended up selling to Rupert Murdoch for a couple billion dollars. It worked out great. But, you know, getting out into the field, living in another mark, another country, you know, dealing with all of the day-to-day operating and, uh, and technological and political challenges when it comes to building a business from scratch outside the U.S., that was really valuable for me. Um, you know, it's not just, quote-unquote, getting your hands dirty, but it's put, putting yourself in, in new and uncomfortable environments and demonstrating that you have the, the, the ability to understand your business at different levels. I mean, I was always I clearly understood the business, but it's not until you really get out there and operate a business, hire and fire people, put stuff in the ground first time, you know, raise capital. Those are things that really, uh, I think, are lessons you can't teach. You've got to live them. So that was a very valuable thing. And then I, let's see, later in that decade, I came back to Denver to become president and COO because I think I, you know, established myself. And that was right before the bubble started to, internet bubble. You may, may not be 
old enough to remember that as well as I do. But oh, I remember it know, well. <laughs> the internet bubble was a uh, was a real inflection point for people because we had built a company. John Malone had just invested five hundred million dollars. We were really flying high. We were, but we got a bit over our skis, as they say, and uh, in particular the European business. Uh, which was being run by our chair, then chairman's son, it was a bit uh, too, too 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 highly levered. So, long story short, we ended up spending. I ended up spending after the internet bubble every ounce of effort and energy I had to put the business back together. Because a lot of us, you know, the business really had a difficult transition out of that uh, those financial markets. And I would say, you know, we went back to zero, at least in some respects. So. That was a wake-up call, you know, for me, and I was kind of designated survivor. I don't know if you watch that show on ABC, but <laughs> I was like last man standing, and it was me and, and John Malone, who was our big investor at the time, that rebuilt this entire company uh, in many in a series of very complicated deals. But I had to rebuild the management team. I had to, uh, you know, as president and COO at the time, really uh, take this business back to something great because we had really gone through a difficult period. And, you know, in that process, that's after, um, shortly after that happened, three or four years later, I was made CEO. And I think John Malone and others saw that I was able to, one, manage a lot of complex financial and, and operating and people-related issues, but also that I was, you know, committed and and and, uh, and that I had the respect and trust of the people in the field that mattered. Because it's a very discouraging and demoralizing thing when you go through those kinds of reorganizations. And having you know, everybody around you feel confident that we're going to make this thing work again. And that was really a rebirth in a sense. I became CEO in 2004, 2005 timeframe. And, you know, the last 11 years has really been when we've taken this company to what it is today. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's really been in that period of time that we've, uh, we've really turned it into, you know, the very large and I'd say successful platform, global platform that we have. Um, but those were, you know, those were lean years. And I always say, you know, without a little scar tissue until you've kind of looked into the abyss, you don't really know what it's like to, to build something. And I, and I, I, sometimes I don't even hire people that don't have a little bit of scar tissue who can't look at themselves and say, yeah, you know, I made this mistake and here's how I recovered from it. Or I was in this tough situation and here's how I rebuilt value or morale. So uh, that was a big moment for me. And, you know, and, uh, and I think it's defined sort of my leadership style and, you know, the teams I've put around me and our approach to managing our balance sheet and our growth. And so there's a couple examples. Oh, great. Tell me a bit about the World Economic Forum. How did your involvement with it come about? And how does that involvement uh, involvement add value to your role as a CEO of a global corporation? Yeah, well, the World Economic Forum is an unusual. I mean, I go to a lot of conferences every year. It's an unusual one and a good one. I've been going for 13 years. Um, and, you know, in your, if you're a global multinational, that's, a, that's redundant. But if you're a multinational, especially with operations in Europe, uh, you're highly dependent on regulators and politicians. Davos is an incredible opportunity to speed date with presidents, prime ministers, and regulators because it's a uh, it's a small smallish setting. You have very informal bilaterals. People are saying, "Look, I got 30 minutes for you. You got 30 minutes for me. Let's make this happen." So for me. The, we get a lot of work done, quote unquote. I mean, this past Davos, I had a very good session with Theresa May, you know, Prime Minister of the UK. We have a very big business there. Brexit's critical to us. So, uh, you know, you can't just do that anywhere. The, the concentration of leaders 
gives you incredible access and to really get things done in, a, in an informal and, quite frankly, very efficient uh, way. On the other hand, there's also a, it's an important industry session for me. A lot of my peers around the world show up, so we have a good opportunity to be face-to-face or meet or discuss and actually in groups, industry groups, talk about where we see things headed and, and maybe collaborate on, on things that are important not just to us but to consumers and and uh, emerging markets and things of that nature. But maybe the last point I make is what happens around Davos, quite frankly, is more impor- interesting than the conference itself. So everybody who comes to Davos hosts their own little event. We host a breakfast where we roll out a policy study of some sort. We host a ski lunch where people come and socialize and network. Every investment bank consulting firm has a great dinner where somebody speaks. Or So, you know, there's really um, – it's a terrific opportunity to network, of course, but you know, also to get a broader sense of where you fit in the ecosystem and kind of, quite frankly, where you fit on the world, you know, in the world at large, because mm-hmm. it's that kind of attendance. So it's a valuable event. Uh, we're, we're, we'll, I'll keep going as long as I'm, as long as I can get there and, and uh, spend the time. You're a member of the Board of Trustees at Wesleyan, but you're also a board member of a number of other organizations, from what I understand. Are there any that are particularly near and dear to your heart? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I am chairman of the Museum of Contemporary Art here in Denver, mm-hmm. which is a really exciting organization Um uh, that uh, really only in the last 10 years has come alive with a new building that was uh, designed by David Ajay, who's gone on to become a you know, world-famous architect. And uh, It's a Kunstall model, so we're not a collecting institution, but I've really enjoyed, my wife's on the board too, really enjoyed supporting this, this organization that is so unique. It, I mean, it engages with 8,000 teens in, in the community every year. It it respects and nurtures local artists. Uh, we have incredible content and programming out in the community. And, of course, it's a great exhibitions. We have an exhibition right now of Basquiat work that uh, uh, that was uh, hit, uh, that he made before he was Basquiat, essentially. I also chair an event here that the governor and I co-founded called the Biennial of the Americas, which very quickly is a, a festival of ideas, art, and culture focused only on the Western Hemisphere, from Chile to Colorado to Canada. And we bring together every two years people to Denver to discuss the big issues that are impacting the region. Uh, we, we bring we have exhibitions, we have performances. It's a really exciting week here that we do. And, uh, uh, and I'm passionate about education. You know, we have I've been a big investor in charter schools. And, uh, and then uh, to help raise money, I, I actually joined a, a band as, as I've never sang a song in my life, but somehow I am the, as the lead singer of a CEO cover band. And uh, we're not that good, but if you have a couple beers, <laughs> it will transport you right back to college. Uh, but we have raised about $6 million for charities here locally. And, you know, we don't charge and we usually make contributions. So it's an excellent way to have fun. And, uh, you know, we're not that, we're not that good at all, but, but, you know, we're, we're, we're community minded and, and uh, we have a good time with it. So, Colorado is a great place to get engaged. It's a terrific town. It's small enough to be uh, chummy and easily accessible, but also large enough that you can do some important work. Well, it's funny you anticipated my last question because when I heard about the fact that you were the lead vocalist for a cover band, I thought that that had to be the most Wesleyan thing I had ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Especially since I'd never sang a song before. Exactly, exactly. Uh, But I tell you, it's been a blast 
because you know I'm I I can I played nine years of violin I can I can kind of sing I'm on key but you just need to have attitude you just got to be on stage working it like Jagger not quite like Jagger but you know as long as you're <laughs> animated and having fun and engaging the audience and you're pretty much on key you can do any rock tune ever invented um, and it's fun you know we have a good time and and uh, you need outlets in life, you know, right. whether for me it's heli skiing or mountain bike races or surfing or, I don't know, getting up. We played Red Rocks once for 8,000 people. That was a blast. And I, it, uh, so it's, it's a good time. We don't take ourselves too seriously, though, Sharon. That's the moral of the story. Don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> good advice for all. Mike Freeze, class of 1985, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. This has been Careers by Design, the interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway, music by Andrew Santanello.